0: Our text uh, this morning comes from the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So follow along either in your Bibles or on the screen or on your devices. This is God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, may have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that is living and and powerful, and and we ask now that you would pierce our hearts, our minds, our souls with it. Uh, Give us your spirit so that we can understand. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that we would see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So, some of you, I'm sure, have seen the original Superman movie. Um, And I know there's been a couple different iterations of Superman over the years, but I'm talking about the original one back in the the late 70s, starring Christopher Reeve. Uh, And there was a, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but it's like 40 years old, so sorry, not sorry. Um, There's a, a point in the movie where It's in California, and Lois Lane, who is Superman's love interest in the story, is driving along, and there's a terrible earthquake, and all of a sudden, the earth opens up right before her, and her car careens into this massive hole in the earth, and the dirt starts pouring in, and she's struggling to escape, but she can't, and she dies. So, of course, when Superman discovers this, he is distraught and lets out a a huge scream, and then proceeds to do something quite amazing. He flies up into space and starts flying around the entire Earth to reverse the rotation of the Earth, thus moving back time to before her car goes into the massive hole and comes to the spot where she was and saves Lois Lane before she succumbs to death. So, the passage this morning, we have a man, Nicodemus, who has an encounter with Jesus. Uh, This is the first instance in John where we see Nicodemus. There's two instances later in the book where he is mentioned. So, who was Nicodemus? What's his bio? Uh, Well, he was a Pharisee, which meant that he devoted his life to studying the law. He knew the ins and the outs of the Old Testament laws. He was an expert on what constituted keeping and breaking the law. So if you had a question on a technicality regarding the law, he was your man. You know, is it okay if if I do this on the Sabbath? You know, can I do this and get away with it and and be fine? But Nicodemus also was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body over the Jews. And not every Pharisee was a member of the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus was kind of a big deal. Uh, Think of a well-known politician in our day. That's how high up and how revered Nicodemus Was So before we unpack this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus, it's important to note what came immediately before John 3. Uh, John writes for us in, in chapter 223 that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and many were believing in him because of the miracles that Jesus was doing. That's good, right? Well, actually, John writes in 224 that Jesus did not entrust himself to these people because he saw truly what was in their hearts. So this sets the context for the passage this morning from John 3, and also what would follow as Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, heals a crippled man in John 5, and gives his bread of life discourse in John 6. So two main things that we're going to reflect on this morning, uh, the first of which is born-again. You may have heard the term "born again Christian." Uh, I don't know if it's used a lot in our day and age, uh, but there's a man named Chuck Colson who, again, going back to the '70s, uh, was on Richard Nixon's staff during the infamous Watergate scandal, and as a result of that, he did prison time, but became a Christian and was greatly used by God in prison ministry and wrote a book called "Born Again," which sold a, a ton of copies. Uh, But one commentator says that the term born-again Christian is really a redundancy, or as my uncle likes to say, it's from the Department of Redundancy Department. Uh, That is, to be a Christian automatically means you are born again. There's no such thing as a not-born-again Christian. So this term, you know, we don't hear it too much these days, but I think over time when it was largely in use, the significance perhaps could be more focused at times on the individual and that person's conversion and testimony, which is not insignificant, but sometimes I think that overshadowed exactly what God had done for that person. So this encounter that Nicodemus has with with Jesus, uh, what is his approach? Well, in verse 1, we see there that he came to Jesus by night. Now, some commentators say this may be because Nicodemus was afraid of being found out by his fellow Pharisees or Sanhedrin, or maybe because he knew just how busy Jesus was during the day and said, hey, if I get him in the evening, I think I might be able to get his attention a little bit better. Or maybe he wanted to have a more intimate conversation at night. You know, think of that, those conversations that you've had when the the evening air just feels good and right, and, and just how that lends itself to really deep, meaningful conversation. Or another explanation, which is interesting, is that by night is really a metaphor for Nicodemus and his spiritual state, that he was in spiritual darkness. Uh, John, in his book, loves using contrasts, and one of the contrasts he uses is light and darkness. So some say this, this could have been it. Ultimately, we don't really know. Maybe it was a combination of things. Uh, but Nicodemus comes to him by night and refers to Jesus as rabbi, teacher, in verse 2. So Nicodemus, like other people, had observed these signs that Jesus was doing and concluded that he was sent by God. But how deep did Nicodemus really believe in Jesus? So in verse 3, we see the first response that Jesus makes to Nicodemus, truly Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those words, truly, truly, are, are really key words that say, you know, pay attention to this, what I'm about to say. Other versions say, most assuredly, I say to you. But what Jesus does here is he utters an absolute requirement for entrance into God's kingdom. You have to be born again or born from above. And the Kingdom of God is not so much a physical realm but the spiritual rule over god's people over all things, which we experience now in part, but one day it will be fully consummated. Another way to think of kingdom is is heaven. Now indulge me for a minute. Uh, think about you know being born and, and what that means, and imagine if you were having a conversation with a little one who was like just born the week before and say that babies could talk from the start, right? That they didn't have to learn speech, and that you could converse with a baby like you would with an adult. So, you know, you come up to one and say, baby, you know, tell me about being born. What was that like? And the baby proceeds to say, well, there was darkness, and then it was light, and it was a lot of commotion, and a lot of people screaming, and uh, it was just a, really a whirlwind kind of a thing. Now, if the baby was being accurate about describing that, uh, at no point would he or she say, yeah, I did this or I did that, right? To be born is, you're just born, right? It happens to you. You don't do anything to cause it. It's passive. So in verse 4, Nicodemus responds again to Jesus. And his response there tells us that his mind was solely on the physical, questioning Jesus how a man could possibly be born a second time. I mean, the thought was ridiculous, and still is. And Nicodemus, no doubt, was beside himself at, at these words of, of Jesus. Well, the dialogue continues, and in verse 5, Jesus responds again, saying, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So once again, Jesus lays out this absolute requirement for, for entering the kingdom for entering heaven, but this time expands on it. Now, theologians have wrestled for a long time over the meaning of water and the spirit. What's, what's exactly going on there? Well, water could refer to baptism, but Jesus had not yet instituted baptism, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that this would be the case. Or perhaps water refers to the cleansing or the purification that is required of us so that we can be a part of heaven. Others say that that water and spirit are really one and the same thing, that it's a figure of speech where, where two different things convey the same meaning. Whichever it is, I think the main point for us is that the Holy Spirit must do a work of regeneration in a person's heart. He must bring about this new birth or second birth. The spirit has to bring this transformation from the inside. Uh, any English teachers in the house or grammar nerds? Um, I know the rule usually is, or at least I think it still is, passive voice is bad, right? Or at least you know, try to avoid the passive voice whenever possible. Use the active voice because the passive can rob the writing of, of some of its force. Well, this is an instance where the passive is good, Uh, In regeneration or the new birth, being born again, something is done to us by God and by God alone. It's it's a very good thing. And yes, we are active in, in responding to this. We're active in that response of faith. But even that response of faith is a result of the new birth. Even that response of faith is a gift of God. Well, then Jesus goes on to talk about flesh and spirit. Flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. And Jesus is not just stating the obvious here when he he says this in verse 6, if you look there. He's telling Nicodemus that physical birth absolutely cannot guarantee a person entrance into God's kingdom. Now, we have to stop there and remember the culture of the day, and the Jewish thought. You know, for Nicodemus being a Jewish man, this would have been utterly offensive to his ears because, after all, the Jewish people believed that by virtue of just being born into the Jewish race, into that heritage that went back to the Old Testament, simply by that, that's all that was needed to inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus says emphatically, no. To be born means to be born with corrupt flesh, I remember years ago uh, seeing a copy of the Christian publication Table Talk on my parents' nightstand, and I'll never forget the cover. Uh, on the cover was a little smiling baby, you know, as cute as could be, and, you know, over the baby's face in that, you know, that, that stamp kind of, you know, printing were the words total depravity. And I remember looking at that and it's like, wow, that's, that's pretty jarring uh, to see something like that. And we think about that, and it's not something that we really want to admit. We don't want to say, how can someone so small, so innocent, so cute, um, be associated with depravity, with sin? But that's exactly what Jesus is telling us in John 3 and Paul in Ephesians 2, that our corrupt flesh can do nothing but produce more of the same. To be a sinner doesn't just mean that we have some character flaws or some weaknesses you know, some bad habits that if we put ourselves in the right environment, surround ourselves with the right people, and just up that Bible reading and that prayer, we can overcome our sin and God will be pleased with us. We are dead. Whereas as dead as Lois Lane and Superman before he reversed the rotation of the earth. We're 100% unable to bring life to ourselves. We need the Spirit to make us alive. We need to be born again. Well, then Jesus also talks about the wind. You know, think about the wind, right? We see the effects of wind. We hear the effects of wind. Sometimes it's nice, you know, a spring breeze. Other times it brings destruction. But we can't actually see the wind, and we don't know its next stop. Well, he, Jesus further confounds Nicodemus in verse 8, saying that those who are born again of the Holy Spirit, you know, it's, it's like the, the wind. Uh, In fact, the Greek word used here for wind is the same word for the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is using a play on words in verse 8. And there is great mystery in the wind, isn't there, not? We never know who God will work upon and and when. Uh, I was thinking of a fellow who I knew from my previous church, and I would see him from time to time at the same place every time, and, and he always came across to me a little bitter, a little bit jaded, you know, never really showing evidence of an interest in, in spiritual things. And, you know, after uh, a certain amount of time, I would no longer see him at that same place, but I ran into him at a coffee shop, you know, some months later. And I just remember that interaction, you know, he, he started talking right away and said how he was enrolled in seminary classes and was on some kind of ministry track, and and he was excited to, to tell me this. And it just seemed like his whole countenance, his whole demeanor had been transformed, and I like to think that the Holy Spirit blew like the wind into his life and brought about that new birth. Well, I also ask you to think about your own personal experiences, and sometimes we like to compare those to others, don't we? You know, we might look at him or her and, and say, wow, that 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 testimony, that that conversion experience that that person had, it's so much more dramatic than mine. And, and I can't really think of a time that I had that kind of you know, dramatic experience. And, and you know what, our story is, is our story and God works in our lives in different ways. And, and that's a beautiful thing. He doesn't work on every person the exact same way. So be grateful for the life that you've had. If God has shown you his grace and you have been born again, um, yeah, relish exactly what God has done and the timing in your life with that. Well, we do see that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. Uh, if you look at, at verse 10, Nicodemus continues to be skeptical about what Jesus is telling him, saying, how can these things be? Right? You can just kind of hear his, his, his skepticism there. Well, in verse 10, Jesus chides Nicodemus and points out his high position of authority once again, uh, that Nicodemus was essentially the guy when it came to religious and theological matters, which is why Jesus uses the word the in front of teacher, the teacher of Israel, not just a teacher. And part of this is that this new birth, being born again, is found in the Old Testament. So it wasn't for lack of knowledge that Nicodemus was missing the mark. If we go back to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Verses, I'm sorry, chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, where it says there, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this was not an entirely new concept. Jesus was saying, it's there, it's there in the Old Testament scriptures. And perhaps Jesus didn't rebuke Nicodemus as much as some of the other Pharisees, right? We have other accounts where Jesus really lays into those guys. Uh, It seems a little bit more tame here, but nonetheless, there's still a rebuke. And this conversation with Jesus demonstrates that Nicodemus still had a ways to go to understand the nature of salvation and exactly who Jesus was and is. Which brings us to our second main point of reflection this morning, and that is son of man, son of man. If you look at verse 13, Jesus does speak to his true nature there. You may see the son of man and be a little curious as to what Jesus is getting at here. Well, he's referring to himself with this title. Uh, In fact, this title was Jesus' preferred way of describing himself, you know, his favorite self-designation, if you will. And he preferred Son of Man over Messiah because of the way that people could understand the Messiah in their minds. They thought of the Messiah as more of a political ruler set to free people from earthly oppression. And Jesus was saying, no, my mission is higher and greater than that. Jesus says that he has descended from heaven as God's son, so he has the authority to speak to Nicodemus and to us about all things. He has descended from heaven so as to identify with us and to save us. Well, some of you are terrified of snakes, Uh, I'm sure. um, If you see a little garter snake in the front lawn, you know, you you freak out. Uh, Well, in verse 14, Jesus alludes to an incident recorded in Numbers 21 where there are snakes in the wilderness. And it's recorded there that the Israelites had grumbled against God and accused him of ill treatment as well as Moses. So in response, God sent fiery serpents that bit people and some died. Imagine the terror of that scene, right? Venomous snakes, you know, coming out of the woodwork. Uh, I can't imagine. Well, just as God sent his judgment, he also sent mercy. And he said to Moses, make a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole so that everyone who's still living and snake-bitten can simply look at the serpent on the pole and live. Well, Jesus, the Son of Man, tells Nicodemus that he must be lifted up. Now, when we think of that, being lifted up, uh, I think usually it means to be exalted, to to be praised. But here, the lifting up of Jesus also refers to his humiliation on the cross. And why did he have to do it? To demonstrate God's love so that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life, just as the Israelites in the wilderness looked to the serpent to live. Well, brothers and sisters, when you think of Jesus, what comes to your mind? Do you see him as a marvelous teacher, you know, one whose guidance and wisdom back then is just as applicable and forceful for us today. Well, if, if that's all you see Jesus as, then frankly, he's no different than Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Further, are we more like Nicodemus than we think? Are we banking on our privileged upbringing? Maybe we grew up in the church, we grew up to, to Christian parents, went to a Christian school, Do we think that those kinds of things grant us kingdom access? Don't get me wrong, those are incredible blessings. But are there other kinds of things also like our social stature, intellectual or career or educational achievements that we put our security in or even our own personal character or attributes for entrance into heaven? Do we believe that we only need a a small savior that we've stayed away from the really bad stuff most of our lives, that we look to Jesus and say, yeah, he, he died for me, but I don't think I needed him quite as much as, as that guy over there. As I think back over my own life, uh, when my parents or a youth leader or a really good friend, you know, called me out and confronted me over my sin, I remember each time my internal reaction was always, how dare you? But in the end, they were right and I wasn't as great as I thought I was. And ultimately, we are what we are in our natural condition. Flesh produces flesh, and we need the Spirit to bring us to life. Uh, Friends, to be a Christian means so much more than following a moral code or being on the right side of things. It's a living relationship with the living God from which nothing is hidden or impossible. The Christian life is one of transforming power And living out of that transformation. Uh, Listen to these beautiful words taken from Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are created to do good works, but they don't save us. They're a a result. They're the fruit of this new birth that God brings into our lives. Uh, R.C. Sproul, the late theologian and commentator and pastor, writes, If you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit, in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, And in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. Do you believe this? It's not a matter of just trying harder or drumming up the desire in our own power to do good things and to do things which please God. We need transformation, we need our whole system to be overhauled. And in the new birth, To be born again means that God has come and transformed every single part of what makes us human, our heart, our mind, our emotions, and our will. And for that, we praise God. Let's pray.